0: welcome to the getting closer to the cloud podcast we are microsoft technologists here to help you raise your rhythm of technical intensity and climb the cloud maturity curve in each episode we will talk about the latest and most interesting developments in the microsoft cloud and perform deep dives into topics of interest hello i'm shane baldachino and we're back episode two episode one complete and we actually had a few people drop us a message. And for those who did, thank you.
1: It's always nice to get some feedback from the community on how we're going, how we're trending, and whether we're actually hitting the mark for you guys. So I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out to actually let us know what you thought of the first episode.
0: Awesome. Okay, Pete, as I said, we're back. Now, I've been building lately. So, you know, I'm just going to share for the audience. In the last week or so, I was thinking about, you know, green waste. How do you prevent it? We have so much technology waste, -waste, e-waste, I should have have said. Um, So many doodads sitting on my desk here from, you know, I'm looking at a a Mac TV remote, an Apple TV remote through to Garmin devices, the whole lot, right? So how do you prevent these? So I've been playing around with software to be able to create a mechanism to turn the lights on and off in my study um, using MQTT and Windows, really, really cool stuff.
1: That's always fun, Shane, to um, you know automate your home, and I know you're a big fan of doing this. And uh, I've certainly been following your blog, uh, Bollicino Automation. But uh, this is a show for all sorts of individuals, including builders. So we are, you know, including everybody here. And there's been a lot of activity taking, um, you know, focus away from other announcers at Microsoft. Um, but yeah, building is very close to my heart.
0: Exactly. Look, and whilst we pivot between deep dives of topics of interest and overall platform updates, today, you know, a special event for the builders in all of us has just passed. Now, I don't think we can skim past this event, Pete.
1: I could not agree more with you, Shane. And I think you are probably referring to the very well now known event called Microsoft Build, which we actually promoted in a previous episode.
0: That is exactly what I'm talking about. As you said, you know, we even told the audience about it. Indeed. And in this episode of the
1: podcast, we're going to cover Microsoft Build to give you some, I guess, some headlines, Shane, perhaps, that uh, should get people interested in perhaps uh, what's been announced. And there's been a lot announced, to be honest.
0: Yeah, exactly. Some headlines, right? Now, perhaps, you know, our listeners didn't catch a previous episode or you're not aware of Build. Pete, what's the lowdown? What is the summary of this event? So
1: Build essentially is our annual developer conference. So MS Build's then then... Um, event held by us, obviously. Uh, It's aiming at software engineers, web developers, using Windows, Microsoft Azure, and all sorts of other wonderful Microsoft technologies. It was first held back in 2011, so it's going back a while. So it's well and truly over a decade, and it serves as a successor to Microsoft events, such as the Professional Developer Conference and the Mixed Conference, for those of you who've been around the Microsoft Ecosystems for a while.
0: That is going back a little bit Mm -hmm. here. Indeed. it is an event where a good chunk of service and feature updates are launched that relate to this, you know, to the development community. From the days of Microsoft DOS, that's where I first cut my teeth. And basic, you know, to the creation of Visual Studio Code and our acquisition of GitHub, we have been a platform and a tools company built by developers for developers. So in this way, Build clearly reflects our roots here. Today, Pete and I are going to talk about what are the key feature announcements for build and how they can improve how we build. You know, what new levers did Build provide you? Fun one, Pete. Do you know how many sessions were in Build this year? I know, like, you're doing lots of, uh, you know, amazing, important stuff here. Did you tune in?
1: I did tune in. I saw Satya's keynote. I actually um, tuned into some of the actual um, sessions, in fact. Um, And there's been lots, to be honest with you. Uh, and I have actually also got my hands dirty on the back of that. So, yes, it's been a great event. Got my uh, inner geek charged up and uh, got to play with some of the cool new stuff that's coming out, and there's a lot.
0: There is a lot, So, and I'm glad you, you're doing all that, which is amazing, right? We've all got to find time to keep our saw sharp. There was 331 sessions at Build. That's a lot, so, that's a Shame. That's
1: a lot because I, I skimmed through the list and I thought there was couple of hundred, but I had no idea that uh, it was 331 in total.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Now, we can't cover every session here today in depth, so I would encourage you to check out the Build Microsite. Most of these sessions are available on demand, and there's something for everyone from level 100 through to 400 level. So look, I want to start today's show, I'm going to talk about containers. They are hugely popular, and there is so many ways to run containers in the Microsoft Cloud, from a VM, running Docker through to Azure Container Instances, through to Kubernetes on a virtual machine, through to Kubernetes in the form of Azure Kubernetes Services. Pete, it's complicated. What do I choose?
1: Well, look, there's a, well, lots of choices as you described. There is, you know, um, Kube's is becoming definitely the de facto for a lot of development houses and uh, uh, ways of running a code. Uh, but you got to think about pods and clusters and nodes and kube control for me the best thing is to think about what is the business differentiating thing that's going to help you? And containers is actually there doing that. But I would always say, come back to the cost of serving your end users and customers uh, on top of containers. What's the most cost effective way,
0: Shane, moving forward with that? Exactly. You know, is it business differentiating to be amazing for your business, uh, understanding Kubernetes? And I would argue in a lot of cases, it's not business differentiating. It's a, you know, it's a needs to an end. You've also got scaling challenges. And yes, we're dancing around the announcement here. So we want to talk about Azure Container Apps as it has now gone generally available. At Build, we announced the general availability of container apps, and we're looking forward to hosting your production apps. I know when I heard this, I had a you know my own inner Wahoo moment. Kubernetes is hard, and I've seen many organizations struggle to operationalize Kubernetes, particularly when their core function is not to be awesome at Kubernetes.
1: Indeed, and look, come one, come all, bring all your apps, and Container Apps is essentially an app-centric service empowering all of you developers out there to focus on really differentiating your business logic of your apps rather than focusing on the cloud infrastructure management side of things. So, you know, you get to swap your time from playing in the plumbing of infrastructure to spending more time on the app logic. And let's face it, we all want to ship more features. We all want to get things up and running. So container apps really helps you to execute your code packages in any Linux container-based environment without really having to, you know, enforce any strict opinionated runtimes uh, for your programming models.
0: So just to add to that, Pete, as you just mentioned, you know, today Linux-based containers only. Scale all the way down to zero or scale out, you know, to meet, you know, the global demand in response to a swarm of HTTP requests. Alternatively, container app support running apps as always on background services. So you don't have that first hit uh, penalty.
1: Absolutely. And look, the next generation of apps are really cloud native, Shane. And cloud native apps really are focusing on a large distribution of your app logic into small self-contained microservices hosted probably and most likely in containers. Uh, and all of these are loosely coupled, the resilient, the manageable, observable. So essentially, it's uh a very different way of building apps. For those of you who perhaps have built monolithic solutions, you could still take those and run them if you really, really want to. But the the way of building large, scalable apps is to really spread them out. Take a meat cleaver, if you like, chop them up into little microservices, and then you can actually have uh, you can actually provide um, business business owners or people in your organization as owners, perhaps of con- on some of those container apps. Some of them don't always have to be developers. You know, someone could make you maybe change some config files. Uh, But at the end of the day, it makes the platform more resilient uh, and simpler way of, um, you know, democratizing access to them and also making sure that you're tying in your business managers and folks into it. Because you can start to think about software mapping more to the org structure of your organization and people that actually need to be able to own bits and pieces of that. So it's a very interesting way of uh, looking at it. I know most people think of containers as you know little chunks of code running in little little bounding boxes in a PowerPoint presentation, or inside a, an architecture blueprint, but fundamentally it is really the future of building new systems for the future.
0: A meat cleaver, that is one way. I've never heard <laughs> Kubernetes being <laughs> described before, microservices, et cetera. But look, under the hood, the container, your Docker container—it's running on Kubernetes, but it's abstracted away from you. You can use KEDA or the Kubernetes event-driven auto-scaling architecture with, you know, Dapper distributed application runtime and Envoy proxy for load balancing. So leverage, you know, Dapper to encapsulate best practices for microservices, KEDA to achieve, you know, event-driven scaling without, you know, that complex manifest of you know, traditional Kubernetes operators. This is an open-source centric approach teams can onboard their cloud-native apps quickly to Azure without the operational overhead of Coop whilst prever- preserving, you know, app portability.
1: Indeed, Shane. And look, uh, the Azure Container apps is really built on the foundations of uh, open-source technology like uh, what CNCF um, has been working on and using projects, like they said, you know, um, cater for essentially scaling out your containers Uh, DARPA for really, you know, uh, helping your apps to be run in a distributed fashion. Uh, And with Envoy, essentially being able to control how um, communications and uh, communications channels are actually managed and tracked um, across your AKS environment. So it's a very cool way of actually uh, taking all the heavy lifting away from what developers would be probably needing to configure and set up and, um, uh, you know, configure for, execution and production, uh, and by leveraging these technologies, uh, you basically make your life a lot easier. So things like, you know, managing your manifest configurations and all the kube operations that take place can be kind of overwhelming. So think of this as in summary that, uh, you know, this is an open centric approach to DARPA, KEDA, Envoy. Uh, And it basically allows that teams can push and host their apps on containers uh, without the operational overheads of Kubernetes, um, while preserving as much portability for your applications as possible.
0: Yeah. And my summary is pretty much that, right? Throw us your containers. We've got this. We'll handle, you know, the scaling, all that other stuff. And Pete, this all, it sounds like roses, right? And I think pretty much, by and large, it is. I've worked with so many organizations that are they're in a race with others, you know, a race to deploy. They want their developers spending time delivering value, delivering code, not feeding and you know, watering infrastructure, understanding, you know, cider ranges and so on. You know, it's important, but things are pivoting. You know, developers are doing high value things these days. So is Azure Container Apps right for you? Now I want to canvas Azure Container Apps against AKS, a very popular Azure Kubernetes service. From a control plane perspective, Azure Container Apps supports only ARM, the ARM resource provider. So if you are, you know, leveraging Kubernetes native resource providers, pick AKS. Envoy, you know, the load balancer born out of Lyft is the only load balancing tier available for um, Azure Container Apps. If you need NGINX or a BYO approach, then again, pick AKS. If you need scaling rules that are above you know, HTTP throughput, CPU, memory, or cater metrics, then choose AKS.
1: Now, Shane, what I'm hearing is that we have a very sensible set of defaults set up. um, And uh, some, you know, opinionated defaults, perhaps, is another way of looking at it, that will probably suit most of the use cases and scenarios that you're actually facing. So this is very cool. But I want to actually pivot a little bit towards pricing. And you know, container apps is built essentially based on a per second resource allocation uh, and servicing your requests. Now, the first one hundred eighty thousand vCPU seconds and three hundred sixty thousand gigabits per second, uh, gigabytes per second, and two million requests per month are actually free. Now, beyond that, you pay for what you use on a per second basis on the number of vCPUs and uh, the amount of memory your application is actually consuming. Now, applications scale out on demand based on the number of requests and events, which kind of makes a lot of sense. And container apps replicas are also built for when they're actively running essentially, and can also be configured to scale down to zero replicas when there are no requests or events in the process, which again, is awesome, because there's no usage charges that apply when an application is scaled down to zero, aka, it's happening at, you know, 4am in the morning, and no one is actually using that application, you pay nothing. Now, you can optionally configure container apps with a minimum number of replicas to be always running in an idle mode, Which is kind of cool too because what that means is that when an application scales down to its minimum number of replicas the usage is actually charged at a reduced rate shape which is very cool because you're still keeping your costs down but your application remains still available for interaction and a replica enters an active mode and is charged at the active rate when it's actually starting up when it's being essentially processing requests or when the vCPU or the bandwidth usage is actually above the actual thresholds, which is kind of cool. So if you actually look at the pricing page, um, I don't know about you, Shane, but I was losing places as how many zeros after the decimal point you actually get built. So these are really <laughs> rounding errors of a cent uh, at the uh, you know thousands of, um, one thousandth of a cent, which is kind of cool.
0: Exactly. It's either that or I'm getting old because I had to zoom in, like, you know, really focus on the screen <laughs> to count the number of zeros. I like the fact that it has an idle component because the container is still there. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have that first hit penalty, but you're being charged a reduced rate when the container is not doing anything here. So really, really cool. And it's great that you know, the team has thought about this.
1: Yeah, and look, the pricing side, by the way, it's I mean, um, there's no difference actually on the memory because the memory cost is, is still being consumed, right? Even when the app is idle. But uh, on the vCPUs, that's when you start to see the price fluctuation. So it's pretty cool. It's well thought out.
0: Yeah, pricing is an interesting one here. And I would encourage everyone to take a look at the Azure Container Apps pricing versus you know, AKS pricing. And I think the short of it, my summary is, if you have constant running workload, you will pay a premium for Azure Container Apps over AKS. However, you can scale to zero. You can reduce your costs, your fees. Um, but the other dimension here is, you know, what does it cost for your people? to water and feed a Kubernetes cluster. Mm. Organizations are realizing this. People are often the most expensive element of cost. And also not being mentioned here is you know how this service changes the shared responsibility model, right? So you are no longer having to worry about a lot of, a lot of things that you would have to worry about when you were running, say, AKS. So there is a premium to this service, but the small jump I would argue is far outweighed by the benefits. And for me, Pete, this is my hands-on, you know, real-world. What matters today in twenty twenty two pick for build.
1: Love it, Shane. And uh, look, it's it's pretty close to me too because when I think about the modern architectures, the modern ops, DevSecOps, in fact, where you know everything's automated, you know, you check in your code and. Hooks kick in, um, auto builds take place of your infrastructure, auto deployment. Um, so the need for traditional human beings, you know, kicking boxes and rebooting them kind of diminishes, especially in the cloud. So that was a you know, somewhat skewed
0: infrastructure announcement in container apps, Shane. Yeah, I, look, I could <laughs> argue that, but, you know, it's it makes plumbing a lot easier by removing a lot of things. But I think you're right. It was, you know, someone, you know, infrastructure skewed here. Um. Yes. Indeed. And look. Uh, speaking of development, when you, when was the last time
1: you know you walked into an organization and you had to be a developer in your organization? I mean, that problem is faced by a lot of our uh, customers, a lot of developers all around the world. It
0: is. You know, how long once you've started before you ship code? Mm-hmm. How long before you get your dev machine set up? There could be a SOE, uh, you know, standard operating environment image build which is probably going to be really outdated. It could be a set of scripts, you know, build scripts, PowerShell, DSC, desired state configuration, chocolatey, or, you know, going full old school. It could be a list that you print out and you install things one by one. Um, was it punch cards, Pete, in your era? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I may have gray hair, but uh, I, I can put a hand on heart and say I've never written code on punch cards, but I know lots of people who have, <laughs> and I'm still good friends with them. But look, uh, developers today face you know a huge, long list of um, onboarding obstacles, especially around timing, you know, there are conflicts in development workstations that also have to be resolved around settings. And it's also difficult to switch between tasks when you set those things up. Uh, and also for IT admins to maintain, you know, a secure and compliant end to end dev environment, while providing, you know, Developers, the flexibility that they often ask for. In fact, they demand flexibility. Uh, all of this stuff needs to remain agile. So, we introduced at build Microsoft DevBox Shane. And Microsoft DevBox will give developers self service access to high, really high performance, if you want to, uh, cloud based workstations that are pre configured and ready to code for many common specific developer projects. So maintaining a developer workstation that can build, run, and debug your application is kind of difficult, but critical to the success of keeping our pace in a modern development era across many, many different teams. So as developers, we often need that flexibility to set it up really quickly maintain our workstation to our favorite sort of configurations uh, but even some small changes can unexpectedly poison our dev environments install the wrong library or some support or dl hell that you might be facing all this stuff can interrupt your flow and i'm costing you hundreds of hours to undo so at the same time many it organizations are struggling to provision dev teams with the right amount of flexibility that they need to stay productive. So think of getting a GPU into a machine. That can be hard as a a basic example. Now, hardware requirements for developer workstations can change also really quickly. You might be going from one project to go, actually, now I'm going to build a mobile app. I need to do something, some testing on a mobile device, say Android, right? So all these things continue to evolve and increase the hybrid development team needs uh, which becomes really difficult over time. So DevBox, which is our new cloud service that provides developers secure, ready-to-code developer workstations for hybrid teams of any sizes, Shane. And the cool thing is it empowers developers to focus purely on the code so you can write, you know, develop your app, And uh, making it really easy for our devs out there to access all the tools and resources they need without worrying about the workstation configuration and maintenance. And if you get it wrong, rebuild it and get a new one. Yeah,
0: look, I liked, uh, you know, what you were talking about then with procuring hardware. You this dev Mm -hmm. team and, you know, every organization, as an example, is doing machine learning stuff these days. Either they are or they're thinking about it. What is the wait time potentially to procure a GPU? Yeah,
1: training time is huge, right? right?
0: So look, in the same light as container apps, the theme here is to make things easier, be productive, be more productive, quicker, reduce the time it takes to ship code. Again, you know, a race against the competition. So DevBox, in effect, is a developer environment as a service. You know, it's in the name DevBox. So, Pete, how about some details?
1: Look, uh, the details are, are still a little bit scarce because it is in private preview, but uh, here is what we could find out for you. So tune in and uh, listen in, team. We've got a few things for you. So uh, so devbox are essentially Windows VMs that can support the Windows subsystem for Linux, which is super cool. Uh, I actually use it myself uh, on my laptop, um, so it'd be nice to have it in the cloud. For... app. Um, development of uh, web applications. Um, you can deploy your apps to Linux because of the subsystem. You can also have the uh, Windows subsystem for Android for mobile development. I kind of briefly mentioned building mobile apps, and I've done that myself. And it's a, it's a pain to set up and get the right libraries in place at runtime. So nice to have it there. Uh, the remote desktop client that you would actually use to access your dev box runs happily on Windows or a Mac, an Android or an iOS device, or even inside our web browser, Shane, which is pretty flexible so you can do your development work almost from anywhere. And the service is based on existing technology. So Azure Virtual Desktop on which Windows 365 is running, which is basically a Microsoft um, Cloud PC service fundamentally under the hood. Uh, These dev boxes can be managed and kept patched up alongside all of your Cloud PCs in Microsoft Intune and Microsoft Endpoint Manager, which I'm also a big fan of. And um, conditional access controls can also be set up uh, to your specific requirements for connecting devices and and could actually be configured to require multi factor authentic, multi-factor authentication so that's pretty cool because that zero trust model that we often talk about here at Microsoft about trusting you know users devices uh, endpoints all those things start to converge to make sure that you got a very secure um, device when you're being uh, when you're trying to develop and also trying to access that and the uh, pricing chain is yet to be announced
0: got it now from my uh, investigation, what I glared from some of the screenshots that you can take a look online is these instances, they live in an Azure resource group. Therefore, the same constructs such as, you know, networking, applied, they live in that resource group here. So getting a little bit more creative here, could you tie in the creation of a dev box into your onboarding of your staff into your HR system, you know, execute an ARM template to instantiate it? Obviously, you can.
1: Wow, Shin. I mean, if more companies did that, wouldn't that be cool? No more waiting for days uh, or weeks uh. to get to get access to a box that you want to you want to start working on, right? Yeah. And look, on the flip side, um, these are pay for what you use. So always remember that, and um, this actually you know, creates auto many opportunities, like you just alluded to around automation, you know, so that your staff no longer have to wait sitting around waiting for something to happen, you know, those automated emails that you get as a new employee with your password, or what have you or messages coming to your phone, uh, you could actually start to, you know, tie your, you know, human workflows into the provisioning of these things. So to keep costs under control, uh, teams can essentially start, stop and schedule to spin up and down your dev boxes at the beginning of the day and automatically hibernate them when the uh, you know developers go home. And I think in the last episode, Shane, you talked about how you could tie your swipe access yeah. to coming into the building to automate some of these activities. So developers can always, you know, wake up the dev boxes when they need to get access to them to pick up where they left off, which is exactly what flexibilities is all about um, and teams also get a single view of all the costs from one single place to understand where the costs are going across projects and across those teams so again lots of flexibility not just for developers not just for it ops but also for
0: fin ops for fin ops financial ops there we go it is a new buzzword um mm-hmm. so look good well, it's been for a while, by the way. It's not it's new. That is true. <laughs> but, uh, that is
1: true. It's a way of operating with, you know, being financially savvy in the world of DevOps. But
0: you need to be, right? That's where things are going. Okay. So, critically, DevBox doesn't just benefit developers. Pete alluded to the security aspects before. So, look, it ties into, you know, Azure Active Directory. You can do conditional access policies that require users to connect, you know, via a compliant device. Pete mentioned MFA, et cetera, and so on.
1: And look, you can sign up for the waiting list to evaluate the private preview at aka.ms forward slash devbox dash sign up. To see some demos of the service, watch the build sessions developing developer velocity through the entire engineering so just system.
0: Pop, so yeah, pop that into into the build uh, portal, that search term, search. and mm-hmm. away you go.
1: And sit back, pop a you know a, a can of a beverage or brew a coffee, and enjoy the sessions. There's been a lot of
0: fun. I was wondering where you're going with that, there, Pete. <laughs>
1: I gotta be careful what I say, right? This could be dangerous. I was going to say a fizzy soda, really, just to, just, to, just to make sure that you were clear as to what I drink.
0: Got it. Okay. <laughs> now, Pete, as a developer, you definitely want your code to perform. And the challenge mm-hmm. in this is often you have different versions of your code base. Developing, you mentioned mobile before, you know, developing for iOS. You make code in Zwift. Windows, you know, you might use another language. Android, you may use Java.
1: And look, this is really a conversation of performance versus overheads that come along as, uh, you know, uh, the the, the drag alongs, I call them, right? The cost of maintaining multiple code bases can be expensive and difficult and challenging with lots of compiler hash declarations to compile this in or out. It kind of can be quite painful. And teams often also think about things like, you know, do I have to shim my apps in HTML5? For providing extra options, but it often kind of comes down to the expense of performance versus native features when you're starting to build potentially, you know, mobile cross-platform applications. And uh, you know what I really think in this space is that there's a better way, uh, and now we have a better way that allows you to have your cake and eat it too. And I've been following this for a little while, so this may not surprise too many of you. What, it, what we're about to talk about.
0: Are we talking Maui here?
1: Absolutely, which is the .NET multi-platform app UI, also known as .NET MAUI, which is now generally available. It's a new framework for building modern multi-platform natively compiled applications for iOS, Android, macOS, Windows, using one of my favorite languages, uh, C Sharp and XAML in a single code base. It's
0: a pretty big call here, Pete. And I'll admit, I haven't really been following .NET MAUI as close Uh, given my past life, you know, in the open source world. And I think it's amazing, you know, a single code base. And I've worked in organizations where they have debated, you know, a single code base, which is great, over, you know, a JavaScript one. And all the performance trade-offs that comes with this. You know, is this problem actually solvable?
1: Yeah, look, it is solvable. And I actually watched, uh, gosh, many years ago... um, Uh, a session uh, online from I think it was somewhere in Europe when uh, Maui was beginning to form. It was... um essentially a little experiment internally, can we do something different with all these wonderful things? Because developing for mobile devices is really challenging. Uh, And essentially what Maui does, it's a framework that solves the challenge that developers face every single day when building essentially native apps across many operating systems. And instead of having to learn multiple technology stacks and APIs, uh, .NET Maui goes ahead and abstracts those into one common framework built on top of .NET 6 right? So this native app, essentially looks and feels like the operating system. And as for those of you who've been building apps for mobile, like, like I have, um, in the past, you know, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies, you have to learn about iOS or Android. Uh, and you also have to think about, you know, the native experience uh, of how this thing would run on your platform. So there are a lot of defaults and layouts and all those things essentially have to be considered when you're building it yourself. But here, you know, all of those things essentially are fully adapted to each device automatically on your behalf with no additional code, right? So even things like APIs are directly available from C Sharp into, you know, 60-plus different platform features that can access things like isolated storage, sensors, geolocations, cameras. A lot of that interop is really hardcore You're trying to do it yourself. Uh, and with um, Visual Studio 2022, 20, It also includes support for hot reloads, which is essentially being able to make changes on the fly, which I I absolutely love myself. And this makes developers' lives so much more productive, especially when you're working in the uh, .NET MAUI space, when you're trying to change a UI component so the app looks a little bit more user-friendly. So developers essentially can take advantage of some of the latest debugging technologies as well, which is great. Things like IntelliSense, which we all love, as well as being able to test you know, applications as part of the Visual Studio, you know, uh, dev, you know, test, you know, code cycle for, for writing better and faster code.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned, you know, storage, sensors, geolocation, and more. And in researching for this, mm. I was pretty impressed seeing the list of devices, iOS, you know, into uh TV OS through to uh, Android's, watch operating system, I forgot what it's called, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of, uh, you know, native integration here. Okay, so this release marks a new milestone in you know our multi-year journey to unify the .NET platform. So now you and over 5 million other .NET developers, you know, you have access to a first-class cross-platform UI stack targeting, you know, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Windows, and so on here, right? So, .NET MAUI is fully supported under the current release schedule of 18 months and will be serviced at the same monthly cadence as .NET. So today, our ongoing focus for .NET MAUI continues to be quality and resolving known issues. They're all available on GitHub and prioritizing issues based on your feedback. You know, how had a look before at the issues list, and I love the fact that this is all playing out in the public. You know, you can see the issues, you can do a pull request, and so on. Maui, you know, targets Android. It's Android Wear I was referring to before, CarPlay, iOS, Mac OS, TV OS, and more, right? And the point I wanna make here is this isn't a half-baked attempt.
1: Not at all, Shane. Look, And the primary goal here of .NET Maui is to enable you to develop the best possible app experience as designed for each of those target platforms. So like I said, Android, iOS, macOS, Windows, and Tizen, by the way, has also been added through Tizen.net, which now lets you build your apps on Samsung smart TVs, which I think is very, very cool. I'm going to ha- have a go at doing a, that a couple of Samsung TVs at home. All of which, by the way, enables you to craft consistent brand experience, which are very important for all of us out there who are in those applications, through rich styling and graphical look and feel, and out of the box, each platform looks and behaves the way it should without any additional widgets or styling required to mimic the native look and feel of the actual platform where your code runs. I've got a
0: few Samsung TVs here, Pete. Am I going to, you know, be able to go to apps and download the Doctor Pete Stansky app soon?
1: Ah, oh, you never know. I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do with it a weekend, Shane.
0: Excellent. All right. So, Pete, to channel my inner Top Gun, and I've yet to see the movie, all of this counts for nothing if performance is slow.
1: And look, uh, I've seen the film. I won't spoil it for you here or anybody else tuning in. And look, .NET MAUI is really designed for performance, right? You have told us all of our developer feedback has been around performance is critical, not just for this, but also for any applications to, to start up as quickly as possible. Especially on Android devices, uh, there is a, usually a bit of lag. Uh, the UI controls in .NET Maui implement a really thin decoupled handler mapper pattern over native platform controls, which speeds things up. Right. So this reduces the number of layers in their rendering UI and simplifies control customizations. While this is all gobbledygook to many of you, uh, for those of you who are living in this space essentially the thing comes up bootstraps and runs a lot quicker right so essentially you know from the very beginning of this journey uh we set ourselves some engineering goals to improve startup performance and uh also reducing the app size which is very very important right so especially when you transition to .NET 6 and at the time of uh Today, right now, going being GA, we've achieved a thirty-four, almost thirty-five percent improvement for .NET Maui, and a thirty-nine and a half percent improvement of .NET uh, on Android. So this is performance gains. So these gains are, you know, awesome because they um, extend the complex apps that you have today and make them simpler and faster to, to, to kick off. So startup times um, have also been reduced, and uh, huge improvements in. Uh, performance since the previews because Maui has been around for a little while for those of you who've been tracking it. Uh, this is going GA now, but there've been a number of previous releases. People have been playing with this like myself uh, and those things were kind of bug bears. taking too long to get started. was a bit of a bit of a bit of a pain, but again, the pain you got there was offset by the UI experiences that you could build. And now we've actually started to converge and close those gaps. So essentially to get started using you MAUI on Windows, Install or update your Visual Studio uh, two thousand and twenty two preview to version seventeen point three preview one point one. Check out the installer, choose the uh, the workload, add .NET Maui platform app UI development option, uh, and then go ahead and let um, Visual Studio update and install that. And for those of you on a Mac, yes, there are many of you using it, using it today. Install the new Visual Studio two thousand and twenty two preview for Mac seventeen point three preview one. And fundamentally, Visual Studio 2022 with WorldGA.net now MAUI tooling support later this year out of the
0: box. Amazing, Pete. Now, keeping with the Top Gun pun, CoPilot, mm-hmm. you know, your AI-based pair programmer. How my joke there? That's not
1: bad. Not bad, not for, bad for a dad joke. Not bad for
0: a dad joke. Ever since, you know, Ada Lovelace, uh, Polymath, often considered the first computer programmer. Proposed, you know, in eighteen forty-three, using holes punched into a card to solve mathematical equations on a never built mechanical computer, software devs have been translating you know, their solutions to problems into step-by-step instructions that computers can understand. So that allows you, you know, our listeners here, as a developer, to have an intent to accomplish something in your head that you can express in natural language, and this technology translates to into code that achieves the intent that you have. That's fundamentally a different way of thinking about development than we've had since the beginning of software. You're trained on billions of lines of public code. GitHub Copilot puts the knowledge you need at your fingertips, saving you time and helping you stay focused. We are training and creating models in the cloud to help you code better.
1: And look, this is a pretty bold statement, Shane. And look, many of you will often wonder, how does this actually work? How do I use Copilot to extend your work developer workflow? And essentially, it, that's what it does. It actually extends your editor. So GitHub Copilot is available as an extension for NeoVim, JetBrains, and Visual Studio Code. You can use GitHub Copilot extensions on your desktop or in the cloud using GitHub Codespaces. And essentially, it's fast enough, enough to use as you're typing in your editor. So think of it as Copilot is currently in technical preview. So you can sign up for it and um, see how it works with a broader set of frameworks and languages. Uh, there's more coming, by the way. The technical preview does especially well for languages like Python, JavaScript, TypeScript, Ruby, as well as um java and golang uh, but it also understands dozens of languages and can help you find a way around almost anything to be honest shane because uh it's seen so many different code snippets that it has been trained on so you can cycle through alternative suggestions that are made by it choose which one to accept or reject and manually then edit suggested code snippets so Copilot adapts to the editor that you are using and also matches your coding style
0: Now, I took this out for a test drive with Python and VS Code and re-attempted a challenge from the advent of code. If you're not familiar with the advent of code, pop it into your favorite search engine. It's amazing, but the the short of it is for every day of advent, you get a coding challenge that gets progressively Mm -hmm. harder and harder and harder. Go check it out. It's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, I bombed out on I think about day seven or day eight. So, look, I tried. Um, Look, not only does it suggest code snippets, you could write text in the comments, right, on what you're trying to do, and Copilot will suggest an entire function. For example, I need a loop to iterate through a MySQL database and return a record set in the comments, and you know, before you know it, you've got a snippet of code. Now, for me, not as a classically trained developer, it's not only helping me achieve an outcome, but it's showing me new ways, new functions, new methods that I was not aware of. So
1: Shane, you touched on machine learning being at the core of Copilot, right? And that's essentially how it's been done. So GitHub Copilot is powered by Codex, which is the new AI system created by OpenAI. And what it does, it actually understands Uh, significantly more context than most code assistants have done in the past, right? Which has often been static code analysis at a very simplistic, you know, if-then level as opposed to an AI-powered backend. So whether it's a doc string or a comment or a function name that you have written up in the editor, Copilot uses the context that you're providing it as you type to synthesize the code to match what you're actually doing. So together with OpenAI, what we've done is we've been Designing Copilot to get smarter at producing safe and effective code as developers use it. So, the more it's being used, the better it gets, the more context it actually gets. So, Codex was also trained on publicly available source code and natural language. So, it does have a tendency to understand both programming and human languages. So, Shane's comments about using lots of comments in your code will certainly be very helpful to create more context for. Uh, for Copilot to be able to assist you uh, by providing those code snippets. So essentially, the editor extensions uh, send you comments and, you know, code into your environment. Uh, Copilot actually, you know, does that analysis uh, and uses the OpenAI engine to then synthesize and suggest individuals lines uh, or perhaps whole functions uh, as it sees fit, Shane.
0: Yeah. So how good is Copilot? Is it the modern front page that would generate your HTML content for you? And if we're being honest, you then probably cut more of the bloat out afterwards. Copilot was benchmarked against a set of Python functions that have really good test coverage in open source repos. We blanked out the function bodies and then asked Copilot to fill them in. The model got this right 43% of the time on its first try and 57% of the time when allowed 10 attempts. And it's getting smarter all the time. Does not write perfect code, you know. It is—it's your copilot, as the name, you know, implies. It tries to understand your intent and to generate the best code it can, you can, know, right? And it—it it suggests what it suggests may not always work or may not always make sense, right? And we're working hard to make GitHub Copilot better. Code suggested by Copilot should be, you know, goes without saying, carefully tested, reviewed, vetted, like any other code. As a developer, you're always in charge.
1: Absolutely. And look, um, just a little side note on um, the percentages. So 43% on the first try is pretty impressive, right? It's not quite. And when you're looking at measuring AI systems, anything better than 50% is not bad. And hitting 57% on, you know, within 10 attempts, as Shane just mentioned, is not bad at all because that's better now than a system guessing and evolving. And um, if you've ever tracked how an AI improves over time, It has a really hard time, usually at the very beginning while it's being trained. And then there are certain inflection points where it gets really good. So the question that perhaps many of you will be asking yourselves is, how do I get the best out of CodePilot to get as much of that positive input that is exactly what you're looking for? And look, CodePilot really works best when you divide your code into small functions, use meaningful names for those functions and function parameters, and start to think about writing good docu scripts in comments. Um, And these will certainly help it to have a better approach at looking at different uh, contexts to make sure that it's coming closer. So, you know, in in doing so you are actually helping it to navigate some of the unfamiliar libraries and frameworks perhaps that you're trying to access. So the more you provide in terms of context, the better. The other thing is also, when it comes to suggestions, Now, it relies on, for example, file content, Uh, for the context gathering itself. It looks both in the file you are editing as well as the neighboring and related files as a part of your project. And when you're also using GitHub Copilot, you may also uh, look at the collection of URLs or repos or file paths to identify additional relevant context. So think about it as this, it continue looks and tries to find context what you're trying to do because similar apps often have similar bits of scaffolding in the code paths Uh, filled in with your specific app logic and styling. So Copilot doesn't actually test the code it suggests, as Shane was alluding to earlier. So the code may not even compile or run, but Copilot can only hold a very limited context as well. So even a single source file, longer than a few hundred lines also gets clipped, right? And, you know, uh, only the essentially the immediately preceding context is being used as it's actually uh, making those suggestions. So uh, it's going to get better over time. Uh, so Copart may perhaps suggest all the deprecated uses of libraries and languages as it makes the suggestions for you. Uh, that's because it's looking at perhaps a smaller subset of the coverage uh, of the context that it's trying to, to use. So use this uh, any way you like, uh, but also a bit of a warning, you know, uh, do so at your own risk.
0: How good is Copilot, Pete? And I would say how good was build. We've hardly scratched the surface here today. A lot of things that we missed from Nginx on Azure through to AI-powered ops in Azure Monitor to help you find that needle in the haystack when debugging issues. There is so much to talk about that we just don't have time to talk about, Pete.
1: I know there's lots of cool stuff. You know, think of it as being able to build low-code, no-code apps by, you know, looking at a PDF or a you know, taking a photo of uh, of an app screen. Uh, Power Apps is uh, also had some great announcement about App Express de- Designer and so forth. Uh, lots of announcement, Shane. Too many to name I,
0: here. Too many to name here. I really did love that you know announcement where, as you said, you know, taking a photo of a drawing here, even creating the database schema. Very, very cool. Very. Pete, cool. we're out of time.
1: As always. And look, we spoke about Azure Container Apps, which is now GA, allowing developers and builders to, you know, all over the world to essentially run containers without worrying about servers, uh, being serverless, paying less. So, you know, throw us your containers and we'll happily run them for you at a great reduced, you know, effort to operationalize it as well as making sure the cost to serve is really low.
0: Yeah. And look, we then spoke about DevBox. You know, it's in the name, your development box in the cloud a new cloud service that provides developers with a secure ready to code developer workstation, you know, for hybrid teams of any size. So it's empowering developers to focus on the code that they write, making it easy for them to access the tools, resources, without worrying about workstation configuration and maintenance. At the same time, you know, DevBox ensures unified management. So it's secure, um, you know, work with Intune and Endpoint Manager. We then talked about MAUI, it's gone GA, a new framework for building modern multi-platform natively compiled apps for iOS, Android, macOS, Windows, using C Sharp and XAML in a single code base. The framework solves the challenges developers face when building native apps across many operating systems. Instead of having to learn you know, multiple tech stacks, .NET MAUI extracts them into one common framework built on .NET six
1: and yes and before we close that it's also you know Copilot. what a great ai pair programmer to have in your back pocket or wherever you may be because it's going to help you, you know, suggest you know lines or entire functions right inside your editor as to what you should be coding next so currently in technical preview it will help you not only to increase the speed of development but also will help you to teach you perhaps new tricks Maybe one or 10 new tricks, I wouldn't be surprised. And if you miss parts of Microsoft Build, please remember these sessions are available on demand. So I would encourage you all to find some time in our busy diaries to sharpen your saw and perhaps consume a few more sessions from Microsoft Build, Shane.
0: Thanks, Pete. And with that, we're done. Did today resonate with you? What do you want to hear about? Send us a message at gctc at microsoft.com. Join us in our next episode. We will cover a roundup of major platform updates for the months of June and July and what it means for you. But until next time, bye for now and keep on building.